Hi, I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. I am joined by my beloved co-host, Andy Stoiber. Hello, hello. Hey, how's it going? It's a good day. I come out of Wednesdays, and like that's the heaviest part of the week is Monday through Wednesday. And so Thursday, I'm like, great, I can drink wine in the afternoon. It's a lovely time. I currently have five bottles of wine on my table. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> They're all, and Molly drank all of them right before this. That's the wine shop life. Okay, so this weekend I read something in the New York Times that I wanted to bring up with you. Mm-hmm. Do you read the review section of the Times? Uh, or like sometimes. You know, sometimes, yeah. So yeah. I don't always read it either. And then I came across this piece that was about how to get back the time that COVID stole. The author, Tim Urban, it starts with this, what he straight up calls depressing math of like the amount of time that you spend with your parents each year, I guess, between zero and 19. Then one of those years is the amount that you will spend from 19 onward for the whole rest of your life. Well, oh, yeah, that tracks. Unless you live near your parents or like unless you are like, like the, the average, average person. person. Mm. And so we had like all of this kind of math. If you think about I like to go to the movies and I go to the movies once or twice a year. Like at my age, I'm looking at, let's say I live 40 more years. That means I only am going to see between 40 and 80 movies in the oh. theater for the rest of my life. Weird. Okay. Uh, see, mm, this wait, math so gets called, grim. Okay, this wait. is morbid math. Okay, this so it's is. called depressing math. But then he turns it around at the end of the essay and his whole point was like, so think about how you spend your time and who do you want to be? What kind of things are important to you? If when you hear that statistic about parents and that makes you sad, then you need to go see your parents more often. Mm. Or like if there's something that you want to do, like, for example, Connor and I've been talking a lot about this. And I said, like, I want to travel internationally. Uh. And currently I'm on this like once every three years thing. Well, that does not mean a lot of more trips. But it was like, well, if I can make a trip a year, whoa, that's like suddenly a lot. Or even yeah. a trip every other year. Like, that's at least 20 more trips. I don't know. I'm kind of fascinated by this. I lo- No, that's great. I think the way this applies most in my thinking of recent is around movies. <laughs> I follow, like, the Criterion collection on Instagram and just the vastness of how many movies there are. And, yeah, you think, like, I haven't, I watch a few movies a, a year, a month, you know, it depends. But I'm like, if I watched one a week, well, that's at least 50 movies this year. And that would be huge. And then I don't follow through. And <laughs> what we were doing last season, though, I was kind of loving that every week I watched a new movie. And I was like, huh, this is some content that I wouldn't otherwise consume. And it's like you build up a repertoire real quick. Yeah, right. And I don't think everything has to be super prescribed, but just kind of thinking about what kind of person do I want to be? And the way to do that is to just like do those things. Right. So it made me True. like reach out to some friends that we don't see very often. And I was like, you guys have to come here this summer. And like. Oh, this group of friends hasn't gotten together in five years. So let's get together. So that is, that's great. I mean, it, it seems to, yeah, the essence being like, take action on the things you want to do because that's the only way they get done is doing them now. Right. And oh. then segue. So Anthony Doer, you know, the All the Light You Cannot See author. Yep. yep. I think Connor said that he heard Anthony say that, like, he's going to read a thousand more books in his life. And huh. so he's going to make everyone count. And if he doesn't like a book, he's going to put it down. 
And so I, oh. I definitely think about that a lot. And then I've mm-hmm. been thinking about it in terms of wine as well, right? Like, <laughs> mm, you know, like if I, not that I would, not that I would necessarily pour a yes. bottle out, but like if I'm going to take a bottle home, if I'm going to drink however <sighs> many bottles we drink a week, I'm going to make them all count, right? No, that's great. I, this is the dilemma I think people face is in an era of choice, if I do a thing frequently around what I like, I can build up a big repertoire of knowledge and like, it's great. But the paralysis that happens when you're like, I need to watch a good movie tonight. And then you're like, oh, what's a good movie? Like, you're afraid that you're going to pick the wrong thing. And it's a common thing. People talk about it all the time. Of like, I spent all night just browsing my Netflix library and I didn't pick out anything. So with this, I think it's the like, don't be too afraid. Books are a different commitment than a movie, right? Like, but... I think it says something about just do it. Just pick something and enjoy it. It doesn't need to be the perfect thing. Yeah, exactly. It's time now for our aperitif. A little bit of fun knowledge to wet your palate. This season, we've been asking the people that we interview what wines they're excited to be drinking. And one common thread that I've noticed throughout is that people are naming grapes that are known as noble grapes or international varieties. And I thought that I would call it out and draw your attention to it a bit. So noble grapes are these grapes that are grown across the winemaking world to some renown in various places. So they're the grapes that really, if you get to know them, you have a really strong foundation of wine knowledge. So there are six foundational noble grapes. And then depending on which resource you use, you could see a list as high as 18 different grapes. So the noble red grapes are Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Pinot Noir. And the noble white grapes are Riesling, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. The list has been expanded to include this week's wine grape that we're going to taste, which is Chenin Blanc. It also includes Nebbiolo and Sangiovese, which some of our other people have mentioned. But I bring it up as a chance for you to focus your wine learning and wine drinking. You can really get to know those grapes. You can pick one a month and taste a bunch of different kinds of it. You could pick a country and get to know kind of all the noble grapes that that country is known for and see the differences and similarities between grapes and places. I think it's an incredibly informative way to learn. You get to know the basics of these varietals and then things that kind of branch off from them. You become more informed when you're ordering at a restaurant. You understand why a blend is made the way that it's made. And I think it all around enhances your wine drinking experience the more informed that you are. So find yourself a noble grape. Maybe it's Chenin Blanc. Maybe it's Pinot Noir. And have a glass or five. Now it is time to pop the cork. What are we drinking today, Molly? We are drinking a pair of Chenin Blancs from the Loire Valley. So coming up in the episode, we sit down with Mary Lugo of Domestique Wine, which is a natural wine shop in Washington, D.C. And as we've been doing, we end the interview with a question of what the person is excited to be drinking. And so Mary mentioned Ludo Chanson is the winemaker, and she talked to us about the Le Caboutin Chenin Blanc. And I ordered it from Domestique. They have the lovely benefit of being able to ship. So I ordered this wine. And then they super generously also sent us a second wine from the same winemaker. 
same grapes. This is the Le Peche, which is this demi-sac version of the Chenin Blanc. So the grapes are a little bit riper. So we have mm-hmm. two wines, same vintage as well. So we can do a little side-by-side. This is so exciting. It's so, so exciting. So- we'll let Mary kind of tell you even more about him because these are not wines that I carry at Table Wine. They're mm. carried by an importer that we do not have here in Wisconsin. So these are not available unless y'all want to get on the Domestique website and order from them, which oh, you're more than welcome to do. Yeah, that's actually really cool to know. That's yeah. a thing. And you'll learn more about the D.C. special like, oh, what yeah. special economic sphere of Washington, <laughs> D.C. in terms of alcohol importing. It's amazing. It's really interesting. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. So let's start with the dry. Yeah. Number one. Right. <laughs> the nose on this is great. Yeah. It smells very seaside to me. Oh, this is so good. It's really powerful. I need to, I'm going to pin down what it is because it's unique. I want to say like candied perfume, which is, but I, cause I can't nail down the things, but I, it's evocative. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Um, the fruit is super ripe, but there's so much minerality and so much acidity that it keeps it all in check. It's really phenomenal. And so this was Mary's pick, right? This is Mary's mm-hmm. what she's excited about drinking. And yeah. I get it. Great choice, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Not any shade to other people's picks, but like, I get oh, it. Oh, it's like peach skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is so good. I need to give it justice with words because it is really phenomenal, Shannon. I can't help but just feel like it's a child. Like, it reminds me of drinking like a perfect drink on a warm summer day that came in <laughs> childhood coming in from like playing outside and then having just a fruity beverage that is like so balanced and delightful and i feel like this wine is elusive because it's almost like tastes like a perfect peach or apricot like the flavor is so there that it's hard to get fruit that actually tastes this good mm-hmm. <laughs> like you have to go to like a you have to be picky about the fruit you're picking out of where you're getting because it's like just the perfect ripe fruit and now i'm excited about the demi sec yeah which feel free to go to if you want to mm-hmm. so with the demi sec there's a little bit of botrytis on some of the grapes so botrytis is also known as noble rot so it is a mold that winemakers sometimes want to see on the grapes. So the most famous example of that is Sauterne, which is a dessert wine uh, Mm -hmm. from Bordeaux where they purposefully let the grapes get botrytis. And this, the second wine, his Le Peche has a little bit of botrytis. And so if you've not had a wine that has it, it leads to a unique aroma and flavor that is all its own. I mean, like it is botrytis. So we can try to use other words to describe it, but that's really what it is. Oh. Number two is my jam. Mm. Wow. That's phenomenal. You just get that fact that it gets ripened longer. Like it just has a richer sweetness to it that yeah. is delightful. Yeah. And the mouthfeel is just amazing. It feels Mm. like it is filling my mouth. One thing that I recently kind of chatted with Justin Spaller, who was in our episode three, if you haven't heard it, we were talking about a natural wine a few weeks ago when we were tasting and the wine was very fruity. And I said, you know, that I still, after all these years, I still have a little bit of a preconceived notion that natural wines often have like the funk, the savory, the whatever. 
And mm-hmm. we were talking about how, like, that is true that a lot of the wines do. But I think we saw this with the mind clang wines as well, that there's also the version of natural wine that is just like the purest fruit. Yes. Right. There's like, that's what it's about. And I think that that is what I'm getting out of both of these wines. I feel like with the first one, I did get more minerality. With the second one, it mm-hmm. is just more about the ripeness, about this yeah. almost plush mouthfeel. Yes. But it is this purity of fruit that is mind-blowing. Truly. The demi-sec, to me, feels a little more streamlined in mm-hmm. what it, you're getting mm-hmm. out of it. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to follow my ripe peach apricot i'm bad at stone fruits so forgive my <laughs> inarticulate but i feel like i don't have great stone fruits a lot but the demi sec is like the border it's not bruised but it's like that so ripe mature yeah. when i'm getting uh, some like tropical fruit too like some pineapple mm-hmm. goodness on the demi sec as well these wines are really stunning I would drink this every day happily. yeah could i ask the price point on this so the price point on the the le cabotin is 32. Okay. And that's the not demi sec. That's the not demi sec. I don't know uh, how much the demi sec is. It, I, is it makes amazing. me, and this is something that we also talk about with Mary and we've talked to people about all year long. Like this makes me more inclined to order wine from them. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, this is the best sales pitch I could ever get to want to order wine from them. Right. Um, Like, it's just kind of like, okay, well, if this is what you are excited about, if this is the kind of wine that you carry, like, cool. So drinking these side by side, it's really cool because it, the, the like soul of the grape is present in each. And I'm thinking of the word tone that I think you brought up in season one, but I'm like, is the not demisec a higher tone and the demisec more of a lower? It's like, it feels like, you know, literally I'm imagining the same beautiful piano playing a higher pitched note and a lower pitched note and both are beautiful and they are emanating from the same place but the character that they take up is unique and they're oh it's just so good as you were saying that i was almost thinking of the demi sec as cello mm. right like mm-hmm. just like a little mm-hmm. like richer warmer noise and then yes the drier one being the piano like the tinkling of the piano right yeah it's really special they're really special <laughs> you're right the natural like i when i took the first sip, I was like, oh, this is this is natural wine. Like, it w- this is not what I think of when I think of natural wine. But you saying it's like the pure fruit thing is so right where I don't feel like I get purity of fruit like this in other Chenin Blancs I've had. No, and it's so funny when you think about somebody who's a conventional winemaker who's really like manipulating the wine to try to get to here, right? Where mm-hmm. it suddenly tastes like the peach perfume from the body shop you know where it's like like peach nectar or they're you know or they're like adding sugar and so then you have this like weirdly sweet chenin blanc like this isn't that you know what i mean like this is just yeah yeah if i could be real (laughs) real inappropriate in my imagery for the demi sec i'm thinking if you say (laughs) call me by your name (laughs) (laughs) the scene with timothy and that peach <laughs> That's the demi sec to me, just like juice oozing sensually. <laughs> it's like this. So good. I'm sorry. Why don't you don't have to be sorry? It's like. Well, okay, and the first one, the not demisec, that's like, you know, the opening sum- summer Italy outside yeah. breezy. And then the demi sec is the interior, darker room, the like 
sensuality. Just the set the center of the fruit. Yes. I love it so much. It's like the most perfect analogy. I knew where you were going with it. And I hate Army Hammer so much because that movie is perfect to me. That movie is perfect. And I can't watch it anymore. I exhausted watch it. I'm I'm going, I'm okay. This is though, this is just like summer villa. Yeah. The best fruit just. Yeah, let's go pick the, the apricots off the, off the tree. Wow. I don't know if we've I, talked about it. We, Andy and I really love Call Me By Your Name. <laughs> yeah, we do. My <laughs> love of Call Me By Your Name is a little weirder than Andy's, I think, but. Eh, no, I think they both track. I think it's some steamy. I know, but Timmy's so young compared to me, but I don't care. You know. I just love him. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Okay. This is great. I don't think there's anything more that we need to say oh, about these ones. I know. I, think I know. I think that's the most perfect ending. As you started to talk, I was like, no, no, no. I was going to say it. <laughs> but you were thinking it. It's oh, amazing of course that I we was. As both. soon as you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, I do know. It's, it's really something. It really um, is something. Okay. Wow. Thank you, Mary, for the suggestion and sending that extra bottle along. Amazing. Yes, please. Thank you. We're going to decant. Let our subject breathe a bit. As I mentioned, our interview this week is with Mary Lugo of Domestique Wine in Washington, D.C. You can find them at domestiquewine.com. And I highly recommend that if you are interested in learning more about natural wine, that you check them out. Mary comes to the wine industry via restaurants, as so many of us do. And she and I have a really lovely connection that we get into in the interview, so I'll just kind of let her background speak for itself. We had such a delightful time with her, and the interview was a little while ago, but I still feel inspired by her and the work that Domestique Wine is doing. It was just a wonderful hour of conversation. Yeah, and this was our second interview. We first did Justin, and each one builds on the other. And so listening to this order, I think, is a, its own great experience where things will click together in why people are loving natural wine and what natural wine is. You are the director of operations, right? Is that the correct title? That is the correct title. Sometimes I refer to myself as shop mom, but yes, my official title is the director of operations. <laughs> I love it. So we are talking with people along each step of the way of the natural wine process. How does natural wine get made and how does it get into your glass? And so for this episode, we are talking about The wonderful world of wine retail, which obviously I am well-versed in and Andy's well-versed in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But we wanted wanted someone else. We wanted to talk with someone who has a slightly different approach than we both do. Mm -hmm. So we will get into that a little bit, like kind of where we differ and where we overlap. But first, I guess let's start with who are you, Mary? How'd you get into wine? Yeah. How'd you get into the wine industry? So I live in Washington, D.C., and I spent better part of the last decade in the restaurant industry. Because you know, Molly, we have some really fun overlaps um, <laughs> since you have roots in DC as well. So I actually got into food and wine via wanting to cook. So as a fresh, fresh-faced college graduate, I moved to DC and wanted to get into cooking. I wanted to be a pastry chef. I wanted to be back of the house. I wanted to work with food. Um, and those are all things I still really love. So I worked at a restaurant that is now closed called Polina. And then I was a host. I started from the very bottom. Not to, you know, not to disparage hosts. Hosts have an extremely difficult job. But 
it was sort of the, uh, the job that they gave me was host. And then I worked my way up. I started picking up shifts in the kitchen for free during the day and then serving tables. And it kind of just grew from there. I mean, as, as I know, you, you know, Molly, like the connections that you form in the restaurant industry are ones that I still have. And I know you still have. So I met some really wonderful, amazing, hardworking, kind people and was able to kind of like parlay that position into another position. And so I worked, ended up working in fine dining for several years and ended up managing sort of like fine dining slash casual Thai restaurant, Northern Thai restaurant called Little Cero. And that sort of like kind of opened the world of wine to me and how you can connect to people via wine and show people different parts of the world or approaches or, you know, cultures that they might not have, have thought of before via wine and the, the interplay between food and wine. So I felt like a really natural kind of next step to go into retail. And it's been, it's been a wild ride thus far. You know, I, I came out on to Domestique during COVID. So it's been never a dull moment to get into the wine retail industry in general. Mary's alluded to it, so let's just let's just get it out on the open here. So, <laughs> yeah, Mary and I are from this the is like six degrees integrity. of Kevin Bacon or whatever it's called. This is like okay. This is I just love this story so much. Okay, so Mary and I are. Let's. I'll just say this: we're from the same coaching tree. Oh, so, I, like, I like that. Um, I like that. Right. So, which my husband then asked if Johnny Moniz is Bill Parcells, if that <laughs> if that rings true to any of you, or is he Bill Belichick? Johnny, we love you. Yeah, whoever you are. <laughs> so, okay, so here's the story. For those of you who don't know this, before I opened the shop in Madison, I lived in Washington, D.C. Polina was my favorite place to go to eat. I, th- um, I didn't know that part. That's amazing. No, I know. When you said Polina, I was like, wait, what? So I love to go to Polina on my days off. So I worked for a chef named Johnny Moniz and his then girlfriend, now wife, uh, Ann Marler, at a place called Comey. And I was the service director there towards the end of my tenure there. And that's where I also learned a ton about wine pairing and all of the things that Mary just said. That That's all exactly my path as well. Fast forward, I opened Table Wine a couple of years ago. Here come this like really lovely, enthusiastic couple. They walk <laughs> into my shop and they're just like, hey, we're visiting. You know, I, your partner grew up in Madison, right? Exactly. So my partner, Max, is from the West Side. And so his parents still live there. Exactly. So here they come. Oh. And then they start telling me that they... Also, that Max worked at Comey. Yeah. And that Mary worked at the sister restaurant, Little Cero. And I died. Like, I just totally <laughs> died. Like, no one knows this part of my life here in Madison. I never get to talk about Comey. And so I was just like, wait, what? How is this, how is this all happening? So then Andy and I are figuring out what wine shop we want to talk to. And I was like, there's this really cool natural wine shop in D.C. I didn't have any connection. I didn't know anything. Like, I just was like, I've sent friends there. We've had some good kismet kind of overlap with customers. And uh, lo and behold, I reach out to Domestique and the email I get back is from Mary. And I was like, yes. <laughs> it was funny yes. when your email came in, one of my colleagues, Eric, was like, hey, Mary, remind me, like, when did you work at Comey? And I was like, oh, these days. She's like, Molly Moraine. I was like, what? There's an email from Molly Moraine in there. It Fox, this is amazing. <laughs> I was so ecstatic. So it's just like this, like, big, beautiful, incestuous, like, circle of amazing people it's great yeah sorry andy we love you too yeah <laughs> no i love this this is amazing it's, it reminds it's me of like whenever i go amazing. home with with max and he talks to his parents he's just like catch up and his dad is like in public education so he knows everyone and they'll be like oh yeah you know the miller's over there you know she went to uh she went to uw and then i'm like i don't know any of these people and it's like totally cute because it's like 
these all these interlapping layers of people who know each other. Oh yeah, she she was on my my basketball team when you were four or whatever. And it's just like that's kind of how I feel like in a restaurant right now. I know, right? I mean, that's the Madison world. Is the Madison world is always like, oh, I worked with you twenty years ago. Exactly, you were the line yeah. cook, and <laughs> yeah. you know now you own the coolest bar in town. That kind of stuff, right? Right. So it's great. Yeah. I guess we should keep going yeah. with an interview. <laughs> Sorry for everyone just, who's not yeah. involved in, in our in our small right. tiny circle of, of people. <laughs> no, um, I was I can ask the next question do. as Molly asking it seems funnier. Please. As it is you both could answer this. Um as what does a wine shop director yes. do? The director of you operations. That's a good question. If you could tell me that, that would be amazing so I could figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like in my experience, a wine shop director is kind of a Jane of all trades. I sort of, I wear so many hats on a, on a daily basis, which makes it both an extremely amazing, fulfilling job and role, but also one that can be really challenging because it's like, you're kind of doing it all. So, I mean, at its most sort of basic, I distill my job and my sort of purpose into making everyone else's role within the wine you know retail the little world that we have as easy and as fun as possible so my job and my goal is just to make people do their jobs easier and have more fun and look great doing it so sometimes that means like dealing with the leak that's happening because of the melting snow or like you know unclogging the toilet and sometimes that's like you know, going through wine portfolios and doing tastings and arranging tastings or figuring out like warehouse situations and, 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 you know, problems. So it really is a multifaceted role, but it's one where I'm just trying to support every step of the process, every person, every person's role and contribution. I'm there to support it. Are you, are you one of the buyers or is there someone else who's buying? Yeah. So the way that we do it is we kind of like break the buying up into sections like Jeff and I so Jeff Siegel is the owner of Domestique and he and I work really closely together so he um and I will sometimes like cherry pick if there's like something that gets offered to us we'll be like oh we gotta get this or whatever we like we want to get after a certain producer direct import something but for the most part we try to kind of equally distribute the buying among some employees because I have found that that's a really useful way to kind of get to know and to dig into a portfolio or a producer of a region. So, and then, and then also changes, which like, I think can have its like, it pluses and it's negative. I know like there are certain places like Chamber Street and stuff where it's like, you know, you are the lore buyer for 20 years and you really felt those like deep inroads. But we like the fact that people are able to kind of like mix things up a little bit. So currently the way it is, is I am buying for the Lower Valley, Spain, and Germany and Austria also do a little bit of beer. We don't have like a huge beer program, but we do have a, a smaller beer program that I buy for. And then one of our other employees buys for Eastern Europe and sort of just like that other category, you know, New Zealand and Mexico and Canada, those sort of like non for classic regions, as well as Southwest France, which encapsulates Bordeaux and the Rhone Valley and Provence and that whole area. We have somebody who's buying for Champagne and the Jura and Burgundy in that area. Um, so basically like we just kind of like try to break it up in that way. So you have like a pretty meaty section, but nobody is like the one buyer for everything. And it's interesting because it's like we all have slightly different styles. So it's like, for instance, Jeff is a little bit more classical. My colleague Batali is a little bit more sort of like avant-garde and like the skin contact stuff and the like super natty stuff. And so it's nice. It's like we're able to kind of cut 
a really nice balance between those two. I, I, I liken this like when you go into a restaurant and you look at a list and you're like, oh, the psalm has a very specific taste. He loves these kinds of wines. And he brought in, you know, seven verticals of the same cab that cost $200. <laughs> Um, but it's like, it's a nice way to kind of get a cross-section of everybody's perspective. And we found just operationally, it's nice because if you're the buyer for a section, you could really talk compellingly about a certain area or a certain, you know, style or producer, as opposed to like, well, I didn't buy this. I don't really know anything about it. You're like, oh, I bought for Eastern Europe. I love this. So like I bought for Austria. I brought this in. Like I'm super passionate about this, this producer, this bottle. And so it, it's fun to kind of like have that as a a way to build a teaching tool and like something that we can enrich our employees' experiences working there. That's really great. Our last episode was about the distributor piece of the puzzle. Mm. So if people listening now haven't listened to that, I highly recommend it because I think that like the previous episodes in this season are about kind of the pieces of the puzzle that I think people might not know so much about yeah. from the distributor and importer. So I think here you're kind of like the first person where I think the regular listener is like, oh, yeah, I understand this. Yeah. I've been to a wine shop before. Yeah. So how many different distributors do you all work with? Oh, that's a good question. So it's interesting. We being in D.C., we have we're kind of like advantageously positioned just geographically, as we were talking about before we started. Like, I don't think I really understood or like kind of grappled with how much state law would affect like how we're able to deal and how we're able to ship and how we're able to import things and all that stuff. So because we live at DC, you know, we don't have any voting rights in the Senate or Congress, but we're able to direct import other wine from different areas. So at least there's that silver lining. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Will you, hey, will you define direct import for the regular person who doesn't know what you're talking about? Right, right. Basically means that we can bring in wine as a retailer without using a distributor. And so like, so for instance, we will bring in wine from New York somewhat often, and we work really closely with Collection Assault, which is an importing company. And so we will, instead of like getting a distributor to work with the importer and bring it into the city and then sell it to us at wholesale, we could basically go straight to an importer anywhere in the country and get it um, directly to us, which is really cool. And that's not something I really knew a lot about. And it's something that's still, it's super complicated. It can, there's a ton of red tape and it like can be super tricky. And it's a wonderful way to offer people wine that they normally are going to see. So we really like the fact that we're able to offer things that you can't find anywhere else because of of this, this, this ability, this sort of like, not loophole, but this sort of ability in DC that we're, that we have to direct import. Yeah, it's pretty great. A wow. quick anecdote. My, yeah. I had a friend who was the manager of Pizzeria Paradiso, which is a oh, pizza place. Um, pizza there Paradiso. are a couple of locations, right? So good. He uh, managed the Georgetown location and he was the buyer. And the at least back then, the law was that all you had to do was to pay tax yeah. on Same. the alcohol, right? Exactly. So he would come here, here. To Madison with a U-Haul and he would buy Spotted Cow and then he would dr- drive it to Georgetown where all of the Georgetown kids would pay $10 a bottle yeah. for Spotted Cow yeah. and we would go and I was like I'm not there's no world of which I'm paying that much money for a Spotted Cow yeah. but it was legal and he told it was amazing exactly. it was so cool <laughs> totally it's like Andy's dumbfounded everybody my mind yeah. is blown this is fascinating this is Andy's gobsmacked <laughs> so you're fully removing a, a piece of that puzzle exactly like a, the, you don't deal with any distributors? So we do deal with a fair amount of distributors. I mean, because it, it is, like like Molly said, okay. like you still have to figure out, like, 
how you're going to get it into DC. Like, do you, you know, like, so sometimes we'll direct import from California for like domestic importers, which like we still have to figure out like who's going to pick up that truck, who's going to like schlep that container all the way across the country. And like, generally the distributor take care of that for us, right? So I could just email right up and say, hey, can I get this? And that just shows up and then they drop it on my floor and I can do with it what I want. Whereas like, you kind of have to do all of that legwork. You have to like figure out all that red tape on your own, which is sort of annoying, but it also empowers you because like, like Molly said, you know, you can bring in some spotted towel or something really cool, which is like, you know, you don't, you don't see those kinds of things. So it's like, it's a really, it's a really fun way to bring new things that you wouldn't otherwise see in the city. So we've had a lot of fun just like finding, I actually was just emailing with, he was like, he was a distributor, but somebody who just picked up Funk Factory Guzzeria from Madison. Oh, no I know. I just met so fun. I'm excited to hopefully get those on ourselves. A little oh, piece of Madison are... in DC. Yeah, the owners are customers. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. cool. Nice. Yay, that's yeah. so great. Yeah. Okay, so you kind of uh, alluded to this earlier when you were talking about coming over to Domestique during COVID, but mm -hmm. what did draw you to retail? Like, yeah. What, you know, I think I know the answer. <laughs> I'm going to assume that I know the answer. Why'd you leave restaurants and move to retail? But let's let's hear it from you. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, there's the the sort of like unsexy answer, which isn't the answer that like is completely true, which is like it's COVID. Like restaurants are at this sort of inflection point in our culture where I'm not really sure where they're headed. And a lot of really talented people who got into restaurants to talk to people and to connect with people and take care of people aren't able to flex those muscles anymore, which is really really tragic and really sad. So there was like that part of it, but it's not so much that like I was looking to get out of restaurants as so much as a, like I found a sort of wonderful fit with people who I've come to really love and care about and producers that I really have come to love and care about and want to support and tell their story. So I find, you know, there are so many things I still love about the restaurant industry and I really miss about the restaurant industry, but there are a lot of barriers to entry when it comes to restaurants, right? So it's like, A, just in terms of like, operations and being a business owner and running a business, there's so much more overhead. So like in retail, I don't have to worry about food costs. I don't have to worry about like the same kind of sanitation requirements or health requirements. Like I am just there to like talk to people about wine, to sell people wine. And then from a more social cultural standpoint, there are a lot of barriers to entry in terms of getting in front of a customer who might want to talk to you about wine, right? So it's like depending on where you are, you have to get your reservation or you have to like buy all this food or buy a tasting menu just to get to a psalm to talk to someone about like what kind of wine you might like. So I really <laughs> like the fact that we are essentially able to take out all of that middle, all of those middlemen and just have someone walk in the door and they're like, hey, I don't know anything about wine. I've heard of this wine or I'm interested in this. And you're like, awesome. You don't need to be, you know, like in front of me at the bar. You don't need to like buy a tasting menu. I'm just going to talk to you about wine just like this. And so it just like, it feels like it's a, a more efficient way to talk to people who want to learn about wine or want to share their stories about wine. I love this narrative of, yeah, wine being about love. Yeah. Like yeah. the people in the wine industry yeah. being compelled really, by love. I mean, like that, like at least for me for personally, it. it really is about that. I mean, I think for a long time, especially working in fine dining, I kind of told myself the story that like I didn't want to get into wine because wine was like, assholes in suits who like were talking about burgundy and like that there was no place for me there and like there's still no i don't want to be with those people right but it's like i i think i told myself that story like no i don't want to be into wine i want to be into food because food feels safe food feels more nurturing food feels like there's a place for me there like i don't want to get into wine like when am i going to go like 
hang out with these bros and be super competitive and like, you know, like drink wine I can't afford. And so it felt, it felt like um, kind of like an inflection point in my own personal life and my own personal wine journey, but like just culturally that like natural wine is a more welcoming space and in it's like most, you know, ideal form. And there are places for people who don't necessarily have that classical training and like everybody's palettes and experiences are valued equally in an ideal world. That's what we strive for. But yeah, it's one of those things where like, I didn't realize there's a place for me in wine until I found natural wine. Which great segue into what we really we need to talk about. I guess I'm curious, when did you get into natural wine? And then just some more about what distinguishes natural yeah, wine, in yeah. your opinion? So natural wine is such an interesting cultural item right now, right? It's like so hot. People talk about clean wine and vegan wine and natural wine. I do not profess to be like a spokesperson of natural wine or to know everything about natural wine. But it's like most basic. It's wine that feels alive. It feels like more vibrant, feels more flavorful, for lack of a better word. It feels like it expresses a place and a person a lot more than conventional wine. And it's funny because like I wasn't a, a natural wine, you know, convert or like zealot when I, I came on to Domestique. Not that I didn't enjoy natural wine, but I was sort of more open to all styles of natural wine. And it's funny, I recently had a, an unnamed wine that is not farmed, not naturally, because <laughs> it, and it's like a well-regarded delicious wine. I was like, oh my God, this wine tastes dead. This wine tastes like it has no soul. And so it, it really like, I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, like you, you, the more you're around natural wine specifically, and you're drinking it all the time, you're talking about it, you're thinking about it, and you do really, I think you do feel a difference in terms of like the spirit of a wine. It's just a little bit, it's more alive. It's more exciting. Did you have an aha wine for you in terms of natural wine that was like, a, oh yeah, like I want, I want to do this. Like I, this is what I love. So I remember this is actually my Polina days. This is like before I even knew what natural wine was. And the thing that's like so funny about natural wine is a lot of sort of more classically high regarded point chasing wine, not that they're point chasing, but like wines that like garner a lot of like just overall global respect are natural wine, not because like they're trying to be super natty and au courant, but more like they just always were natty because it's like this is how my grandfather's grandfather farmed, right? So I remember working at Polina and like being a super baby server and somebody came in and ordered a Palo Bea Sacrantino and I was able to snag a taste of it for some reason and I remember it was the first time and things is like even now those aren't the kind of wines that I like gravitate towards like really like big earthy tannin heavy wines those aren't like that's not like my kind of wine for the most part but I remember having this taste of this wine that felt like I was I was sort of like experiencing lots of different sense memories at the same time where it was like, oh my God, it's like familiar and exotic and comforting and exciting all at the same time. And I was probably 23 years old and being like, <laughs> holy shit, I didn't know that wine could taste like that. Oh my God. And then like lo and behold, years later, when I get into natural wine, I'm like, oh, Palo Bea is natural wine, you know? And it's like, I didn't know at that time even what natural wine was. So it's just to say, I think that natural wine is so much more than your pet naps and your skin contact wines and your like crazy labels of clear, like clear bottles. Like those are all great. And I love drinking those, but there's also, I find that the most soulful, profound wine also happens to be natural. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really astute, right? Like I think that there are the 
hipster bottles and they're very smart. Like they're good at marketing, totally. right? They're eye-catching and you want them and they, you know, they taste like, I mean, they're glue glue, right? Like you yeah. want to just drink them and that's brilliant. And I love those wines. Yeah. But yes, I, I, I love that you pointed out that there are lots of wines that you're not thinking of as natural or that's not why you've been, I don't know, taught that they're great. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, actually that person has awesome practices this whole time. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And it's not yeah. like, to do it because it's cool now or to sell it's because like that's what they have found through literal generations is going to produce the most age-worthy, the most beautiful, the most expressive wine that they can possibly produce. I think we've talked about this a little bit just to kind of clarify that domestique wine does only sell natural wine. Yes. Yes. Is that, that's is correct. That yeah. Like everything is organic. All the fruit's organic. The fermentation is natural and minimal sulfur. That's sort of the base level. And then depending on the producer's preferences and the regional practices, like some things are biodynamic, some things are certified, some things are not certified. But yeah, at, at its base, everything is natural in that same kind of like holistic way. I'm really curious now thinking about the clientele you have and how many people come to you knowing it's a natural wine place and they're like, have already, they come, I am a connoisseur of natural wine, I'm coming to this natural wine shop. Are people coming in surprised to see only natural wines or and, and brokering that relationship? Do you get customers who come in are natural wine people, and then they become devotees of natural wine. Um, totally, yeah. I feel like it's sort of this even split between some people who are like, I'm a natty wine person. I want to, you know, drink all the funky stuff, all the weird stuff. And that's great. And we have so many fun things that we try to offer people like that. And then there's also a big contingent of people who come in and who are just like looking for wine. They're just like, hey, I need, you know, a bottle of wine for dinner tonight. And they might not know that, like you said, like we're all natural. Some people will be like, hey, I would like, I'm, I'm here shopping for a natural wine. Like I would like to try a natural wine. And I'm like, great, because everything in here is natural. But, you know, there are a fair amount of people, I think, still because natural wine is in this nebulous cultural space now where people don't really know where it is. And it's like, it becomes, it kind of like feels like it's like parts of it at least are getting swept up in this like wellness sort of like movement or like, you know, zeitgeist where it's like, what does that even mean? And is that like just commercialism in sheep's clothing? And I think it definitely is. So sometimes people come in and they like, they already have a relationship or think they have an idea of what natural wine is. They're like, I don't want something super weird. I want something clean. I don't want something that tastes natural. Sometimes we get that. Um, so people do have a lot of prejudices, for lack of a better word, when it comes to natural wine. And our job is also to like recommend something that's super clean and super bright and super classic that happens to be natural, but isn't necessarily marketed as natural. It just happens to be natural. We have plenty of, like most of the wines I'd say in our shop are just wines that taste like wine. They just happen to be farmed organically and made naturally. I, I have found, as you've been talking, just that I feel like you're my doppelganger. Like we just have a lot of very similar approaches and, and experiences. And while at Table Wine, we have natural wine that is like, I don't know, evenly split or like mixed in with more conventional wine. Yeah. The, the growth of natural wine over the past few years has been just kind of outstanding in terms yeah. of what customers are interested in. Right. But it does just kind of hearing you talk about wine, it feels very familiar to me. And I was thinking about it seems like having not been to the shop because, you know, COVID, that we have kind of a similar approach in wanting to engage with customers and educate in an uh, approachable kind of way, right? Yeah. I, I think yeah. it feels kind of like your vibe. Um, Definitely. And so then it kind of leads me to the the question that we're kind of asking everybody at each of step of their process, but I think that is particularly near and dear to my heart as the wine shop person of like people put trust in you, 
right? And particularly with a shop where you're saying, like, we've done the vetting process, right? Basically, we're verifying that these are good people Mm -hmm. that you want to support, right? Right. Kind of like, how do you handle that trust? What do you do with it? There have been some circumstances of really well-regarded natural winemakers turning out to have really, like, not great practices. Yeah. And and kind of like, how do you how do you navigate that all? Yeah. Oh, what a good question. It's it is not something that I personally take lightly. And it's I think as a shop, it's not something that we take lightly that like, I mean, in some ways, it's like I hate to keep hearkening back to the restaurant industry, but it, it feels very similar to like when you go and you're like, you know, you are spending a lot of money and spending a really special moment at a restaurant, right? Like that's a lot of trust. That's a lot of emotional risk. And so it feels very similar to have people come in and want to spend their like hard-earned money during like a shit show of a year and a shit show of a like a time in the world to spend their money at a small business supporting someone half a world away. I mean, those are not, those are not like, those are heavy things. Those are like that, that is not something that we take lightly at all. And I think I find that leading with honesty and earnestness, which is to say, like, we don't have it all figured out. You know, like, there are, I mean, like you said, there have been some instances in which, as a wine community, we have sort of grappled with the fact that everything is not maybe what we want it to be or as it seemed. And so I think leading with that earnestness and that honesty, just like this is we're doing the best that we can and we will communicate what we can, but we we don't have it all figured out. And be honest with that, you know, is is like, I think the the name of the game there. But I would also say one of the ways that we try to connect with people and to sell people wine that they are excited about and to connect people with wine that they're hopefully excited about is to tell the stories as best as we are able to from the producer you know, spend special moments via telling the stories of the producers as best as that we're able to. You know, like we kind of see ourselves as the conduit between the producer and the customer. And, you know, telling the story about like Franz Simone and Marie Thibault or from the Loire Valley or like people that we love, that we have connections with, that we have visited and we have photos of and really being able to kind of like impart the personality and the soul of these winemakers into like to them the customer and and making them realize like these are going to be on the other end of these bottles this isn't factory farming like these are people who are working in the field who are trying to make ends meet who like need to keep the lights on just like everyone else but that feels very much part of the same process as putting the bottle in the bag putting the bottle in the box and shipping it to somebody or delivering it to somebody you know like that feels like just as much as part of the product as any other part of the the process of getting people the wine and that to me personally, and I think to the shop in general, is really important and is just as necessary as every other step. I think it's one of those things that we think about a lot is like how to handle the trust of both the producer and the customer in a way that feels respectful, um, but also know that we we don't have it all figured out. You know, we're, we're doing the best we can and being honest with both sides and trying to be that go-between between those two. It's heavy. Mm-hmm. It is. And something Andy and I have talked about a lot, and we talk, I mean, I talk about with my staff a lot. Yeah. Trying to thread the needle of wanting to impart the story of the wine and the people yeah. who make the wine and also being objective about whether the wine is good. Right. And like, you know, there are times mm. where you can just kind of like fall in love with a person or mm-hmm. a place. I think it's one of the hardest parts of the job is to be objective and be like, yeah, but but will it sell or 
mm-hmm. not to just be like all sell, sell, sell minded, but of just course, kind of but like, it's like we have to we're businesses too, right? Like, yeah. right. Like, is it something that people want? Right. Or like, is it good? I mean, I've definitely had that where I've been like, you're charming. Yeah. I like you as a person and would love to have dinner with you again. Mm-hmm. Um, your wines are not very good. Or you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, I, whatever. It's just a challenging. It's just a challenging thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think like one thing that we like, I think that that can be part of the same conversation with the customer. Right. It doesn't have to be like, oh, my God, I'm selling them this wine and I don't like you can't stand behind it. But it's like it was a hot year. Like yields were low. There was a late frost. Like those can all be part of the same story. And to make people understand that, like, none of this is guaranteed. Like, climate change is real. You know, like, the global, I hate talking about the global supply chain, but, like, that shit is real. And so it's, like, none of this, like, you having this beautiful bottle of wine that was responsibly farmed isn't guaranteed. Like, things are changing and it's not like you're, you know, I I think it, like, it just sort of speaks to, like, overall disconnect with how the things that they consume, like the food and the wine they consume and how it gets to them and all of that. I think being really honest and grappling with the fact that like things might not be good, but like if you're talking about natural wine, you're talking about things that are farmed responsibly and like made honestly, it's usually because nothing is guaranteed because nature is in control. And so that feels like part of a story that we'd want to express as well, right? It's interesting. It's like sometimes I think about industrialized wine and how it all tastes the same. And that's like great because I mean, every vintage is going to essentially taste the same, but they're going to like, they're going to put colors in it. They're going to put sugar in it. They're going to take the alcohol down, whatever. And so like often like your 2015 is going to taste the same as your 2022, but that's also like why it has no soul, right? So like the thing, it's just like you go to the farmer's market and you have an especially beautiful peach that only is ripe for a week in August. Like those same principles apply mm. to wine because it's the same it's the same thing you're dealing with like supernatural from the earth products now i'm curious i love all of this i feel like this is great it's so funny i'm like hair, like i'm like a hippie now god damn it <laughs> <laughs> well no, you do remind me of just like why th- there is this cultural trend like it does speak to personal values that people are seeking out a product that they're putting in their body that they can trust the supply chain, they can trust where it's coming from. And that's clicking with me in terms of why I think people are resonating with natural wine. But now I'm curious, do you get folks that feel swindled that like aren't natural wine drinkers? They Mm -hmm. came into your shop, they -hmm. pick up a bottle and then they're like, wait, this is not what I'm used to in drinking wine. Like, are you know, totally oblivious to natural wine and got, you know, a funky tasting bottle. Obviously, it's maybe your job to steer that person away from a funky tasting bottle, but it seems totally fair that Someone's going to pick up a bottle, not talk to anybody and not and go home and be like, oh, what did I buy? <laughs> and then be upset and think it's your fault, like the shop's fault. Does that ever happen? So sometimes it'll happen just because like natural wine will sometimes have like more like volatile acidity or what we call VA or Brett and things. So natural wine changes a lot more, like it's a lot more fluid. So like when you open it, like. Again, like it seems so hippy to be, but it's like it has a personality, mm-hmm. right? It's like it's it'll be in a vibe. Like sometimes I'll I'll open something. Like I didn't really ever believe in bottle shock, drinking conventional wine, and then you like you drink something off of the container and you're like, oh, this is like all out of whack. This is super weird. I think expressing to people sometimes, so like when you drink it, like when you open it, it's gonna maybe like be a little in like a weird place. Like give it a minute, like put it in the fridge, decant it, whatever, like put it in your glass for a couple of minutes, come back to it. 
those are all things that I have had to learn how to do, which kind of like makes it even more fun. It feels like a relationship, like the sort of back and forth as opposed to something I'm just consuming. So that's something mm-hmm. I think we try to preface a lot of like those funkier, those sort of more like unknown bottles or things that feel like they might be, they might need a little bit of time to settle and to come into themselves. But I think like we try to do a good job of filtering out what people want, right? And expressing something. So like this is natural wine, but like this is going to taste like a red wine, which is going to taste like a red wine, which is going to taste like a red wine. It's just going to be a little bit more responsibly sourced than your giant selection or something like that. So I think it cuts both ways, but it's all part of the thrill of discovery, hopefully. And so if someone's like not super stoked about something, that's fine. We'll try to find something that they will be. But we also try to sort of express that it might might not necessarily be that like the bottle's messed up. It's more like it's just not what you're expecting or it might might need to evolve a little bit, but it's not necessarily something wrong with the bottle. Yeah. I do want to ask you, since you worked at a Thai restaurant, a Northern Thai restaurant, because wine and Thai, I mean, and table wine is next to a Thai restaurant, so I do need... Your Thai food wine wreck. Yeah. I want to hear that too. Yeah. So Molly and Molly can tell you Um, about this restaurant. It's like the best Thai restaurant in the entire world and like the most fucking delicious food you've ever had in your whole life. I hope I'm like. Did it close or is it It's open for takeout, but it's super, super tiny. So just like not really like tenable with COVID stuff. It felt like this like speakeasy, just this tiny little basement that was like the best. Re- like I will like to my dying day, no, like feel that it was the best restaurant. It is what was, oh. is, will always be the best restaurant in the world. But it's, it was mostly Northern and Northeastern Thai. So like really high acid, really spicy, lots of fresh herbs, which are things that like now, I feel like they like sort of changed my palate. Like that's the kind of food I always want to eat now, even if it's not always Thai. So like naturally we had a pretty strong Germanic list, like lots of Rieslings, lots of like really high acid wines. Not just like some of them were sweet, so I did have some RS. A lot of times they were just like very aromatically dynamic because you're dealing with like all those like crazy tropical herbal fruity smells and, and aromatics. So like that will always have a special place in my heart is German wine and Riesling and it's just so good. It's interesting, like kind of exploring the rest of the world in terms of wine, because like I always thought that Riesling was always going to be my favorite and it would just be my jam forever. And then I realized you can get those same kinds of sensations in different parts of the world, right? So like I love Chenin Blanc, especially from the Loire, but just in general, you're getting those same kind of sensations where you're getting like the extreme highs and the extreme not lows, but just sort of like the richness, but also the acid at the same time. So I love like a, you know, demi-sec Chenin or any kind of Loire Chenin to go with Thai food. From aromatic skin contact pet nat, I had a Greek skin contact pet nat with this dish called kwakling, which is like a dry fried curry that has like green peppercorns and kefir lime leaf and stuff um, recently, which was really fantastic. So just like things I think that have a lot more going on that might normally overpower something a little bit more like dialed back, you know, where you're like, well, there's flowers, there's like fruit, whatever. Those usually, I think as a rule of thumb, always play really nicely with Thai food. I went to Little Sarah and I think one of my favorite things about it, I mean, in addition to the amazing food and everything, is that when you go to other restaurants where you're going to do wine pairing, inevitably like the, I don't know, I'm going to call them the B-list wine people, the B-soms, want to impress you with their big hearty tannic red. And I'm always like, man, yeah. like, can I have um, can I have a muscadet, please? Exactly. And what I loved about Little Saro is there was one red meat dish that had a red, but everything else was like bubbles and pet nat and much more my style of wine. So. Totally, totally. Yeah, and like the thing that's so fun about Thai food, too, and just that, that pairing in general was like, you're not just pairing wine, you're pairing beer, you're pairing cider, you're pairing vermouth, like 
there's so many di- like dynamic flavors to play off of and like texture, like effervescence versus not effervescence, something over ice versus not over ice. Like it was just, it, it was perfect. Maybe you've answered this question, but we're asking everybody this season so that we can explore more, I think is also kind of our our approach to this and maybe our listeners can explore more. What wine are you really excited to be drinking these days? Hmm. So I feel like a broken record because I was just talking about Chenin Blanc, but I've had this bottle of Chenin Blanc from Ludovic Chanson. He's in the Malawi region of the Loire Valley. It's been in the fridge for a couple of days. I usually have a hard time not drinking a bottle over like like one day just because I like can't help myself. Um, but it's really nice to revisit it every couple of days. And it's like waxy and autumnal. Lots of orchard fruit. And it's just been like really beautiful to have something that's opulent and rich, but also nice and refreshing at the same time. It's been snowing in DC. So having those kind of like winter whites that have a lot of power, but still feel really refreshing. Like I find I'm really sensitive to wines that like just feel a little bit heavy. I feel very easily weighed down by wines, but I find that Chenin Blanc, especially from that region of the Loire, can be rich and powerful while still being like nice and light on its feet. And the thing, the cool thing about him, which I didn't realize until I had had some of his wines. And I was like, oh, this totally makes sense. So he will pick via ripeness. So he basically had, he has several bottlings and he does them via like, so he just like hit the first pick, the second pick, and then his final pick. So it's the same like piece of land, but the the fruit is just slightly riper, which like you don't see in France as much. So it's like a very Germanic way to pick your grapes. And I was like, oh, of course, like I'm a German wine lover. And then I fell in love with this like <laughs> this Loire Valley white. But it's like it, you know, it, it feels like there's a there's a connection, a cosmic connection between those two. But I just find anything, any Shenans in the Loire Valley, but especially the Mont Louis Vouvray area, especially this time of year, like I'm all about it. Thank you so much, Mary. This has been delightful. So many more questions. <laughs> I feel like we're hitting a stride with natural yes. wine. That is, now I just want to yeah. do more natural wine. <laughs> you really, you really pitch it well. Hey, we have to go out to DC. I think that's so what we need you. to do. Is... No, yeah. I know. To I want to get this Thai restaurant. Yeah, let's so go. Cool. Let's go drink some pet now on the patio. And now it is time, Molly, for our nightcap. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... Every week, we have a question to kind of send things off. And you inspired me in the first half of the hour to ask this. What is the hardest book you've ever gotten through that you didn't put down? That was hard that maybe you wanted to, but you just kept on going through, trudged through. Okay. So are Um, you thinking hard but rewarding or hard like it was a slog the whole time and I got to the end and I was like, why did I read that? Maybe both, because I think both are interesting. I think I was okay. thinking the first, but if you've done the second, okay, then yeah. Yeah. So I think the obvious answer for hard but rewarding would be Ulysses mm. because it is so much work. And uh, I, yeah, <laughs> right. And I read it in college and I read it in a class and it's, mm-hmm. I don't think that there's many other ways to do that. I don't think that you can, I don't Did think it makes it? sense. Did you have a companion book or guide or did you just read and we talk about it in class? We had materials that we were given and then we talked through it in class. So that is, you know, I think that's the obvious choice because yeah. it is worth it. Like, I do think that there is value in it. I think that there are a lot of those big tomes that are praised yeah. more than they deserve. And more than they're read by <laughs> Right. It's like, I haven't read like, these books. Yeah. I guess that'll just be my answer to the hard but rewarding. The slog. I used to not put books down. 
So mm. there are a lot of them that I did not like. I think Confederacy of Dunces would be on that list. I think Portnoy's Complaint would be on that list. Cloud Atlas would be on that list. If you're noticing a theme here. <laughs> These are all books that I've started and put down. You know why? Literally all of those. Yeah. Because they're kind of boring or they're not nearly as good as all the praise makes them sound like they're going to be. But I read I those it. books because I felt like I I felt like that I had to read them. I felt like I, was, yeah. I didn't count as a smart person if I didn't read them. And I've now, you know, I'm like, occasionally I'll pick up a YA book now or something a little smutty. And it's so much more fun. So... <laughs> Love a little smut. Right. That's the most recent book I picked up was Vladimir because oh, yeah. I'm told it's a little smutty and I like, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. Okay. What about you though? But, yeah. So the book that I immediately thought of um, that it's like a point of bragging rights to me and not my identity because it's the one book that I know other people can't get through that I loved, A Little Life by Hanya Yanagahara. Okay. Have you not heard of A Little Life? Do you know of... Oh. Oh. Well, her new book just came out and was like tons of news come out because A Little Life was very controversial. It was, I think, only long listed for the Booker Prize. Maybe it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. But it is devastating. It is just like about queer, I think mostly just gay characters in New York. And it is tragedy after tragedy. Mm. Um, So to my brother and a friend... Both tried reading it and had to stop, I think, like halfway through because it's just so devastating. I got I was reading it at a point in my life when I was pretty depressed. And I don't think I could have gotten through it if I wasn't like feeding off of the devastation that was in the book. So a controversial author. She's the editor in chief of the Time Style magazine. Oh, okay. uh, and has become there's a lot of pieces written about her as like this new age throwback to the old school magazine editors who are like cruel cutthroat super stylish fascinating figures and she's known for just kind of writing about like gay tragedy and i'm here for it <laughs> not many people <laughs> seem to be <laughs> i love it i'm trying to think of another book that i like you had mentioned so many books that i'm like oh yeah i didn't finish yep i started that i started that i didn't like those books Put yeah. down. We just had so much to say this week. So, um, chin chin. This Andy. wine. Chin chin. Chin chin. The Table Wine Podcast is brought to you by me, Andy Stoiber, and Molly Moran. Special thanks to Craig Ely for his production consultation. If you're enjoying what we're doing here and want to support us, you can do so at tablewinemadison.com slash podcast. And as always, please review, rate, like, subscribe, and share. Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in again soon.